Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I am swell. I'm happy to be talking about movies with friends. Up first in controversies and controversies, uh, have you guys ever heard of Aussie Media? Aussie Media, you guys know? Bueller? Bueller? I spend a lot of time on the internet, as you as you guys know. I read a lot of news on the internet, as you guys know. And I can tell you guys that I have literally never heard of Aussie Media. No idea what it is. Um, and that's weird, because the folks behind Aussie, uh, including founder uh, and frontman Carlos Watson, uh, insist that they're doing huge numbers, just enormous numbers, the biggest, most fabulous numbers you've ever seen. Uh, and this is why they've managed to raise tens of millions of dollars in funding uh, for a value of their company in the low to mid nine figures. They claim to have 20 million subscribers to their newsletters. Uh, In 2019, they claim that their website's got 50 million monthly uniques. Sure, why not? Again, Never heard of Ozzy, not once. Um, those numbers were dis- uh, were discussed by the New York Times' as Ben Smith in the context of a rather insane story uh, about an Ozzy executive impersonating a YouTube employee during a conference call with Goldman Sachs uh, while, Ozzie was, while Ozzy was trying to raise some $40 million from the bank. Um, more stories came to light, and it was quickly revealed that the whole thing was a giant house of cards. In a follow-up, uh, Smith learned of a documentary interview series that uh, Ozzy's Watson had shot with luminaries like Malcolm Gladwell and Roxanne Gay. That was supposedly for A&E. Spoiler, A&E had passed on the project uh, and they went through with it anyway. Just did it. Just didn't didn't tell the producer, uh, Brad Bessie, who resigned from the project when he learned that it would not appear on A&E after all, saying, quote, you are playing a dangerous game with the truth. The consequences of offering an A&E show to guests when we don't have one to offer are catastrophic for Ozzy and for me, end quote. Uh, You know, catastrophic, maybe, maybe not. Rumors of Ozzy's demise were greatly exaggerated. Watson said on the Today Show on Monday morning that Ozzy will endure. Um, Peter, this is a couple different scandals going on here, but the heart of all of it is tied to a very specific thing. There's really no way to judge how real a digital enterprise like this is there. Um, why don't we have better metrics for success? And why aren't funders and founders more skeptical about claims of traffic? Well, I don't think I quite agree with your premise there. I think there are ways to judge how well a media company is doing. It's just not always easy to do. And so uh, metrics can always be gamed. We've all seen The Wire, right? Uh, the, and the like. the point of so many seasons of The Wire is that if you give police officers or teachers or politicians specific metrics to hit and say, oh, that's what success looks like and what they will end up doing is working their whole business around hitting those metrics rather than doing the thing that they should be doing. And that's what Ozzy appeared to be doing here. They were buying a lot of their traffic. They were spending money in order to get views and hits and sort of stuff that was, it wasn't quite unreal in the sense that there were some at some point there were sort of computers connecting to their YouTube videos, right? There were they, they were they were playing often as autoplay ads, things like that. It wasn't that that it was completely fake. On the other hand, it didn't represent the thing that we assume that views and plays actually represent, which is real people choosing to engage with the content because they like it and want to see it. 
And that was the thing that uh, that Ozzy didn't have that they were suggesting with their metrics that they actually did have. Now, also, they took it a step further and just lied to people. I mean, the the conference call with Goldman Sachs is just incredible. And I want to say I want to say for the purposes of this call that I am a vice president from YouTube and I am here uh, to ask you to give me money for my startup. And and Alyssa, Sonny, will you guys please this is I'm not actually spoiler a, spoiler. Not, this is actually a, this whole episode is a pitch to Goldman no, Sachs to it, give us 40 since million I'm dollars. Laureen, <laughs> since I'm Maureen Powell Jobs, I will happily give you two trillion dollars. Hey, there we go. This is we done it. Sunny, who are you? Sustainable forever. We're sustainable. I'm just sunny. That's all I need to be, man. I just, oh, wait. Like, so uh, so but, Alyssa and I are actually other people. But you know what? That's because you're the one, Sonny, who's having the <laughs> mental health crisis that we should not be making fun of. Yeah, no, it's very it's very sad. I mean, this is this is, uh, Alyssa, the most incredible part of the story, right? This Goldman Sachs uh, anecdote that is the the lead of Ben Smith's piece. And the, I mean, the, the craziest part of the story is the, the, so this executive uh, pretends he's a gold. Uh, he pretends he's a YouTube executive to uh, the Goldman Sachs guys. He's like, ah, my video is not working. Can we just do a conference call. We'll just do it over the phone. It'll be yeah, fine. Yeah, because at YouTube, and they don't have great video exactly, conferencing yeah, exactly. technology. And and so and so like all of this is just all of this is just insane and hilarious. But the, the craziest part is they don't fire the guy. They're like, we stand by our employee. He's having a mental health issue. Like. Uh, you know, on the one hand, good for good for them, I guess. It's, uh, we should all pray to have employees so uh, so generous to us. But on the other hand, this is nuts, right, Alyssa? I mean, this is just literally nuts. Yeah, and I think that I mean, as much this individual incident is totally bonkers. But you know, if I can put on my quasi socialist hat here for a minute, um, what is actually crazy about this on a much larger scale is. Precisely what it reveals about just how terrible big investors are at figuring out what makes for a successful and substantive media business at a moment when corporations have taken over large swaths of that same media business. And look, I recognize that I, as you know, a Washington Post opinion section columnist, have clambered on a life raft built for me by Jeff Bezos, um, and at some point that I will be, in return for his generosity, I will be forced to become the first cultural critic on Mars. Um, oh, force! It's gonna be force. great. Force like that would be. Uh, Alyssa's like, oh, I would never want to move to Mars <laughs> and write about the alien plays. Come on, guys. I mean, to be fair, uh, moving to Mars and figuring out what happens to culture on the red planet would be the assignment of a lifetime, and I would totally take it. But. For the most part, what we have seen over and over again in recent years is company is companies that know nothing about the media business either sort of engaging in hostile takeovers, buying properties like the Huffington Post that they thought were going to become, you know, a way to keep users in their ecosystem, um, or just you know sort of attempting to strip mine local news for profit. And they're all terrible at it, right? I mean, this is sort of scandalous and embarrassing because of the scale of it um, and because the gap between what the media property said it was and what it actually was is so large because there are names like Goldman Sachs and Lorraine Powell Jobs associated with it. But it is a symptom of a much larger sort of sector-wide idiocy. Journalism is not easy to do. Finding an audience is not easy to do. And, you know, what clearly happened with Ozzy or Ozzy or however you want to pronounce it 
is that it, you know, Watson and his collaborators were able to present themselves as the kind of thing that people wanted to invest in. Uh, you know, sort of nominally woke, um, but not actually all that controversial. I mean, they were sort of a more refined, slightly more substantive upworthy. Um, and that was the kind of thing, and that is the kind of thing that advertisers are eager to put their content in front of because it's not controversial. You know, you're not going to get called for, you know, if you are putting an ad for your good or service in front of a story about how, you know, a cross-racial, multi-generational pair of friends, you know, met on the internet and have Thanksgiving dinner together. No one is going to throw a temper tantrum about that, right? It's like I mean, they should have done a story about this podcast about how it's like uh, you know a bunch of uh, uh, cross ideological friends who met at the movies and started a podcast together. Absolutely, I mean, there is no questions like advertisers. Yeah, but then nobody are- would have. I don't want them to write that because then nobody would have read it. Nobody would have seen the video. But advertisers of America, you want to be on across the movie aisle. But true, they. I mean, they absolutely gave advertisers you know, the facade, at least, of what they wanted. And it's been interesting. I mean, Roland S. Martin, who has been, you know, a sort of fixture of cable news um, and is, you know, has been trying to start his own media company, told Smith sort of how insanely frustrating it was to watch, you know, to hope after the Black Lives Matter reckoning of last summer that there would be some more money going into Black-owned media startups um, that had something actually substantive behind them. And then watching it all go to what he sort of understood to be a house of cards. And so this is, yeah, I mean, the impersonating a YouTube executive is scandalous. The Goldman call is, you know, embarrassing and crazy. But what's really wild about this is the way that it reveals that the media sort of donor and corporate class just has no clothes and no idea what it's doing. Yeah. I mean, again, this but I I really do think that this is a this is as much a metrics problem as anything else. You can just like make things up and go to, uh, you know, Goldman Sachs or whoever and say like, oh, look, we got 20 million newsletter subscribers. Sure. Why not? You can't check. There's no there's no independent verification of so much of this stuff outside of like literally just looking at YouTube views or Instagram likes, right? And even those can be but, can well, be totally gamed. I mean, you can say, okay, it's nice that you have these subscribers. We need, you know, access to whatever is measuring your open rates on your newsletters. We need, you know, we need to be able to crack open your chart beat and see where your traffic is actually coming from and what the engage time on these posts is looking like. Um, there are ways to get better data on this stuff, um, in part because companies do rely on out, you know, outside tools for measurement, right? As long as that is something that they're doing technologically, you can at least get access, or if you're going to invest you know, $10 million in something, you can ask for access to some of those outside metrics. It's not like with Netflix where like they're measured the you know the measurement tools they're using are internal and proprietary and so they can just make up nonsense um and totally invent metrics there are more verifiable things that some of the big investors here could have asked for. I mean, this is an old thing for advertisers. There's, you know, literally a, a sort of a phrase, uh, you know, uh, the advertiser's dilemma, which is 
uh, oh, I know that 50% of my ads are working. I just don't know which 50%. It's always been very difficult for advertisers to judge these things. Um, even in the age of print newspapers, you know, how many people were actually seeing those ads? How many people were actually looking at them? Uh, you know, in some ways, television ads were a good bet because they actually played in between, you know, sort of in the middle of the show. On the other hand, uh, even in the even in the days of of ad supported television where none of us had uh, DVRs or, you know, or Netflix or anything like that. How often did you get up and go make popcorn or, you know, go get yourself a snack during the commercials to Star Trek The Next Generation? I, as somebody who watched every episode of Star Trek The Next Generation on ad supported television, it was a lot. I didn't see a lot of those commercials. And even the ones that I was sort of sitting in the room for, it's like, oh, that's when you talk to your family, whoever else you're watching, right? You're totally, you're not really engaging with that content. And that has always been a problem for advertisers. I do think this just, you're, you're right to focus on the metrics um, in some ways, just that this is a, this is a, a, a problem. I wouldn't say maybe even a problem, but this is an issue that is cropping up uh, in the digital era, where on the one hand, we do have a lot more information about what people are seeing and watching and, uh, you know, and, and engaging with. And on the other hand, as Alyssa pointed out with Netflix or with a lot of the, you know, with the streaming services, there's a weird way in which we sort of know less. And so this information exists. Someone, at least, maybe several someones, I've heard it's, you know, I've, I've heard reports that it's a very few, uh, a very small group of people at Netflix in particular that actually knows the metrics. But someone does know. They have perfect information about exactly what people are tuning into. And yet, from the outside, it's much more opaque than it always was, you know, uh, growing up reading box office reports on, uh, you know, at, uh, on Sunday or Monday morning. Yeah. It, and Netflix does have perfect information, too. It's creepy. Occasionally, they will... I mean, they, they know will... down to the second how, you know, how many well, people have watched two minutes, how many but, people have watched 46 minutes. They have total but even views. Beyond that, have... Even beyond that, there's, they, have, they have stats on the places most people pause what they rewind and rewatch. And every once in a while, they'll do something that they think is funny, but I actually find very, very creepy. Uh, like, uh, they'll they'll be like, w don't forget about that moment that 27% of you rewound the watch at tw minute 23 of our new show. Oh, they and literally, like, they got in like, trouble a couple of years ago for tweeting out something to the effect of, uh, you know, we, uh, like, hello to the one user and only one user who watched 14 hours of Batman the Animated Series or something like that, you know, over the yeah. weekend, like they were, they were, it was anonymized. So you couldn't figure out who it was unless I guess it was you. And to be clear, anybody watching 14 hours of Batman, the animated series, number one, good for you. And two, it was me. Um, uh, but they, they were, they were actually sort of making fun of some of their users uh, without identifying them directly in a way that was um, really kind of, uh, I, I think, improper, um, even as somebody who doesn't think they have any obligation to release the to actually release, you know, sort of uh, data for us to see, um, they should not be releasing information that is about one specific user at all, even if it, if even if it's anonymized. Ted Sarandos is watching you kids. Yes. He and they have to be clear, they got criticized for it and, and they have stopped that particular practice. Uh, so what do we think? Is it a controversy or a non-troversy that uh, Aussie media bilked tens of millions of dollars out of investors with their nonsense numbers for their nonsense website? Alyssa. It's a controversy. Peter. This is the easiest it's a controversy I think we've ever done on this show. Oh, my goodness. Is it a controversy? It's pretty funny. It's though. obviously a controversy and not in the sense that Peter often says where he's like, well, we're talking about it. So it has to be a controversy. It's actually controversial. 
So, yeah. If you enjoy this show, uh, and who doesn't, literally 7.6 million people <laughs> listen to it every week because it's great. Uh, yes, make sure to head point, over to... 0.75 million of them shh, stop after the Kanzanon segment. Stop, stop. Uh, make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com where we're going to talk about the greatest question in the history of prestige TV. What exactly happened to Tony Soprano at the end of that show? Speaking of The Sopranos, onto the main event, The Many Saints of Newark. Premiering on HBO Max and in theater simultaneously, The Many Saints of Newark feels kind of like two movies in one. The first movie is a Sopranos nostalgia trip uh, designed to tickle the pleasure centers of longtime fans of the show. Um, there are a handful of Easter eggs highlighting minor characters, and major characters get lots of screen time, uh, though sometimes we might wish they got a little less. Uh, the actor who plays Silvio Dante in this is doing an SNL-caliber job, um, while Corey Stoll's Uncle Jr. is better and Vera Farmiga's Livia is pretty good. Um, um, and I, we shouldn't. Michael Gandolfini um, does a very good job as as uh, teenage Tony Soprano. So He's I, th- fine. I, I thought I thought I thought it was I thought it was unfair of him to be cast in this role, and I thought he did a he did a pretty good job. So good for him. Um, some of the nostalgia stuff works. Uh, and some of it doesn't, but it's never subtle. No one would accuse this of being a subtle movie when it comes to the Sopranos nostalgia. Just one quick example. When uh, a baby Christopher Moltisanti uh, cries while he's being held by his cousin Tony, uh, who fans will remember, uh, of course, killed Chrissy. Um, uh, but just in case it wasn't totally... Even if you don't remember that, the movie tells you that in the opening voiceover. And in addition to that, uh, in case all of this isn't totally obvious, a wizened crone at the end of the table talks about how babies bring knowledge from the other side. They they just sometimes they sometimes they know something we don't. What Mm. could it be in this case? Who knows? Um, I just wanted to yell at the screen. All right, we get it. Stop. Stop doing this. Um, the other uh, the other movie, the other movie here uh, is better and more interesting, frankly. It's the story of Dickie Moltisanti, who's played by Alessandra Nivola, um, and his battles with uh, black gangsters in a Newark torn by racial strife set against the backdrop of the city's race riots in the late 1960s and the raging Vietnam War. Uh, it feels like Chase has more to say here between Dickie's interactions with his father and his father's brother, both of whom are played by Ray Liotta, and the conflict between Dickie and Harold McBrayer, uh, who is played by Leslie. Odom Jr. I, I I sense almost a little bit of regret from Chase and how he has portrayed African Americans on the show uh, throughout the history of the show. Um, and this the the way this film. Um, I sense it in the way this film treats anger uh, about integration and about interracial relationships and all of that stuff. But maybe, maybe I'm reading too much into it. I don't know. Alyssa, what was your sense uh, of this movie and the kind of competing narratives at the heart of it? Um, I thought this was awful and unnecessary. Uh, it just did not work for me at all. And I like The Sopranos a lot. Um, I, it, I mean... I think there are golden age shows that I like more more is the wrong word, but in different ways. Um, but I'm, I'm speaking here, not as someone who is sort of a Sopranos hater or even non-enthusiast. I've watched it through a couple of times. I think it's tremendous. Um, and I just felt at no point in the movie did I understand why I was watching this, except for the fact that David Chase wants to keep working and this is the thing that Hollywood would let him make, which has come across fairly clearly in some of his conversations with um, Alan Sepinwall and Matt Zollerseitz and other journalists who have covered him and the show for a long time. Um, 
I I thought all of the stuff about Newark and the racial dynamics of the city was just incredibly shallow and sort of perfunctorily done. Um, Leslie Odom Jr. is wonderful. I enjoy seeing him on screen. Um, I enjoyed him in One Night in Miami. I enjoyed him in Hamilton when I saw him on stage. I think he is terrific, but I think this is kind of a nothing role in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, I just, I don't think the, you know, if this shit, I, I would watch like when American gangster exists, why do you, this is non-competitive, right? It's just, mm. it's a, it's totally an American gangster knockoff. Um, and then the half of the movie that's about the Sopranos, you know, or about, you know, Tony Soprano's ultimate transformation and, or his first steps on the ultimate transformation to who he's going to become are just so sort of thinly and insultingly done relative to the actual psychological richness of the show itself. I mean, you literally have a scene where Livia is, you know, in his school principal's office talking about Myers-Briggs personality tests and IQ tests. And it's like, he has the potential to be a leader, but will he go the right way or the wrong way? Um, and even more problematically, it's never clear why we're supposed to think his relationship with Dickie Moltisanti is terribly deep, right? I mean, you know, Dickie is literally the guy he calls up when he, like, wants someone to get him some beer. Um, we There's just no sort of deeper engagement there at all. I mean, the script just felt really hollow to me in that regard. And, you know, <laughs> I... I mean, I adore John Bernthal. I think he is fantastic. The movie is better every time he is on screen. But, you know, and a show that is about, you know, Tony and the, you know, the the, the giant presence and an absence of his father would have been so much more interesting to watch. I don't know. This just, I found it just, deadening and obvious. Alyssa, is it is is it a function, is it an issue of uh, a TV show versus a movie? Because I, I, do, I do think that there is a, there, a lot of the times while I was watching this, I thought to myself, this feels like two seasons of the show condensed into two hours. I mean, this, it, it was like, I don't know if you guys watched the Deadwood uh, movie yeah. when the, when the Deadwood movie came out. So, but when the Deadwood movie came out, I was literally just thinking like, okay, I could see how this 10 minute stretch of the film would be a 45 minute episode or like this, this, this moment here is, uh, would be, would be spun out into a whole day of the show. But the, 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 the problem with having two hours to tell a story is that everything feels truncated. It, that's entirely possible. Um, I thought the movie though, just did nothing to convince me that I should be interested in Dickie Moltisanti at all. Right. I mean, if this is supposed to be sort of an origin story for Tony Soprano, it basically the only argument that it makes effectively is that Chris Moltisanti's self-pity is genetically transmitted. Right. I mean, possibly the most interesting scenes involving that character are the ones where, you know, he's visiting Sally in prison and Sally is effectively playing sort of the Dr. Melfi role um, and seeing through him entirely and sort of acting as the audience surrogate there. But he, 
just comes across as such a sort of like a weak person and a weak read. Um, I don't think, you know, the actor has the charisma to make him feel like a seminal character in anybody's life. And it's it's interesting. It's interesting that you say that you think of Sally as the audience surrogate, because I think both Ray Liotta characters are intended to be audience surrogates of a sort, like the bad Sopranos fan uh, is is Hollywood Dick, who's out there like throwing women downstairs and, you know, yeah. being a being a loudmouth uh, bigot. And then you have Sally, who's in prison. And he's like, I just want to listen to jazz. And, uh, you know, I'm, I don't have any time for your self-aggrandizing nonsense. He feels like a David Chase standard, frankly, more than an audience standard. I also had a question about how, I mean, he's in prison because he killed a made guy. How does he get a record player, right? Like he, he shouldn't theoretically- How does he not get killed by the mob? Yeah, I mean, so many questions. <laughs> yeah. um, it, like, All right, I'm, that whole thing is just a very weird affectation. Yeah. Uh, Peter, what did what did you make of this? Uh, and I mean, do you obviously, think, I was interested in the audiophile angle the, and the like speakers, the speakers. I wanted yeah. to ask you if you if you if you could explain <laughs> to us the speaker scene <laughs> and what what exactly those speakers represent to you and to the history of uh, uh, sound. So this is a movie about how Tony Soprano destroyed a beautiful, beautiful <laughs> pair of vintage JBLs and set himself. On a life of crime, right? That that was the track he went on as soon as he threw those speakers out the window. And if he had just said, look, I'm going to leave these speakers in my room and I'm going to enjoy the beautiful sounds that they produce and I'm going to become someone who can... I mean, I actually, like, I think this is, I'm sort of joking, but I also think that this is actually embedded in the movie in a weird way, because here you here, you have that scene where he's listening to the speakers, he's got his head between the speakers, right? He's He's found some sort of meaningful joy in them. And then he rejects the speakers and sort of the, his uh, uncle and sort of the family stuff. Right. And he's like, he is like, that's the moment where he changed, where he makes a decision, a decision about how his life is going to go. And then you contrast that with Sally in prison who somehow or another got a record player. Cause you get them in, in prison, I guess. So you can get a record player, but not a record? I don't... Anyway, it doesn't matter. It's a metaphor. And he's listening to jazz, and he is contemplating his sins, and that's that's the better life. And this, and in some ways, the movie is sort of saying that, the, that like, you can go one way or you can go the other, and you can go the audiophile and jazz records route, or you can become murderous, uh, neurotic, narcissistic mob boss Tony Soprano. And I choose... I choose big speakers. But, Alyssa, please, please correct him on this. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry. That <laughs> metaphor doesn't work at all because theoretically the speakers represent moral compromise, right? I mean, Tony yes. is taking these speakers from Dickie. You know, Dickie's telling him that he can tell himself. It's like, oh, I'm never going to steal another thing. We all know that's not true. So that should theoretically, when he throws the speakers out the window, it actually should be the moment that he like, quits smoking and commits to football and gets a scholarship, but the movie actually wants it to signal the other thing. I mean, truly, I think we can all agree that what this movie should have been about is the process by which Hesh had a musical awakening in the 60s, came to understand what makes a hit a hit, um, and like becomes, this should have been just like a, a Hesh origin story. I'm fine can, with that. 
I will. Con- there, we might I will, get one. I, will, I think. I think Chase says he's got a whole bunch of Soprano stories in the works. I will confess my Soprano superfan story is that I actually tracked down the song that Hesh plays at the end of that episode uh, and bought the album, which is by Dory Hartley. And nobody loves me but you is in fact a fantastic song. So I I will say I like this better than Alyssa, and uh, but I I do think that you are right to point out that this movie doesn't know what to do with Tony Soprano, which is strange given that it is at least one third, if not half, about Tony Soprano. All of the advertisements are, you know, built around a tagline that's something like, how did, how did Tony Soprano become, how he became Tony Soprano or something like that. That's, you know, one of the big ad taglines. And the movie, in addition to not knowing what to do with him, seems embarrassed by the fact that it is doing the Tony Soprano stuff. Uh, and perhaps because, uh, for the reasons you talked about, Sonny, is sort of him, uh, David Chase is not able to make other types of films. So, you know, it's, uh, as I understand, this movie was actually something that David Chase has wanted to make long before he had ever done The Sopranos. And so he has somehow or another shoehorned an existing idea into a Sopranos format. And it just seems like it's sort of like Chase's like Chase is embarrassed by MCUing the Sopranos, which is in some ways what they're doing here, right? It's a bunch of Easter eggs that don't really add up to much except for a for fan service that's like, hey, I recognize Carmela. I know what she's going to become. Boy, that seems like it doesn't actually tell you anything about who these people are or how they became what they are. Um, I, I will say there were some things I liked about this, though. Um, it looks good. It has a nice texture to it. There are some, not all the performances are great, but a bunch of them are, are pretty strong. Um, and there are, there are some good lines in this movie. Not, I wouldn't say it's not packed with them, but like we all do things like that when we're kids beat up the Mr. Softy man, right? Like that's a, that's a great classic David Chase Sopranos bit of dialogue. There's a a couple of bits like that in this movie that, uh, that bit in the, uh, the convenience store, uh, that's a fallacy, Miss Johnson. It's all random. And she then she's just like, ah, you don't understand fate. And it's it's funny and sort of darkly funny, but also kind of knowing in the way that Sopranos often was. And I wish the movie had a lot more of that and a lot less of the, you know, uh, Kevin Feige vision of uh, of of uh, Tony Soprano's young life. I mean, I nothing I, against I... Kevin Feige. It's funny. I I agree with a lot of what you guys are saying. I just think it's I think it's all intentional. I think David Chase is intentionally kind of uh, underselling and underplaying and, you know, really kind of like making fun of the whole Sopranos mythos throughout this movie. Um, and I, I I think it's I it, I think it's a choice. I think it's an interesting choice. The only choice that I don't like is the terrible Silvio Dante impersonation that is just like sub SNL. Uh, uh, not good. I, I, I mean, I am very curious to see what happens next with this because David Chase, after the movie came out, they announced that he had signed a first look deal with HBO, and I'm, I am very, very curious to see if we get a Harold McBrayer series out of this. I would not be shocked if we did. I mean, there's, there's a reason this, this movie feels a bit like a backdoor pilot. Um, I think, uh, and I would be. Uh, I would be kind of surprised if we don't get more movies in this vein. Maybe David Chase can get an actual one for them, one for me deal that so many directors, you know, can't. Um, but we'll see. So, um, I definitely I liked it. I liked it more than I think both of you uh, both of you did. And I'm um, uh, a little surprised by that. So I guess I'm I'm a little concerned about the possibility that this ends up 
producing more Sopranos stuff, in part because as much as I loved The Sopranos and the vibe and like really liked the way that in the end, I think that the show was was a criticism of its audience and became, I, I think, even more aggressively over the course of six or seven. It was six seasons, but the last one was split into two or something. Anyway, however many seasons it was, became a show about how about how its upper middle class suburban educated audience just was like not as self-aware as it thought it was, um, you know, it sort of and it refracted itself, it reflected itself back on on its viewers in a lot of ways. But I also watching this felt like David Chase may not have anything else to say. Like he said the one thing that he has to say and it was great. But this is yet another story about how men are terrible and women live at the mercy of men and so take what power they can, often in their own terrible ways, and suburbia rots the soul. And it, I don't feel like it actually adds thematically to his, you know, to, to what he has to say about the world. And the race relations stuff, I don't think was awful, but it, I, I agree with with Alyssa that it was it really was kind of shallow. It was sort of there because it felt like he wanted he if it, it felt like he felt like he had to put this in the movie somehow or another. I would put this a little differently, Peter, in that I think part of what's interesting about The Sopranos is, you know, yes, what it says about the valorization of the mob, but also what it says about modernity, right? I mean, I thought that, you know, Willie Staley piece in The New York Times about how, like, all the kids are watching The Sopranos and seeing it as a parable about American decline was sort of profoundly silly because that is so obviously the text of the show. But it is a lot about, you know, the, you know, sort of consumption in the modern age about, you know, po living in America post 9-11, about, you know, the extent to which your children may become more polished versions of yourself, but they may not be able to escape your orbit entirely. Um and sure there's I, I forget which I'm, critic it was, but somebody who said something I thought was reasonably perceptive that David Chase isn't actually all that interested in the mob. He's interested in families. Yeah. And I would be much more interested in seeing David Chase on the modern family than I am seeing him on sort of the history of the mob. I, I'm just excited from the New York Times trend piece. It's like kids are watching The Sopranos because it's got violence and strip clubs, just like their parents. Because remember, that's what that's what attracted people to the show in the first place. All right, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on The Many Saints of Newark? Alyssa? Thumbs down. Peter? I will give it a thumbs up. I wasn't upset that I watched it. Thumbs up. Good movie. Uh, all right, that is it for today's episode. If you loved it, please make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode on the great mystery at the heart of the end of the most prestigious show in prestige TV uh, with her, Tony Soprano. And make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we will die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I will convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys again next week. Next week.